to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode 42 where we go back, back to, to the, the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and by tuning your Black Diamond Shard. Mm. We are part of a uh, collective this week here, Chris. Why don't you tell them about it? Yeah, this is the this is our first ever crossover. What I did that doesn't cross over with ourselves. Right. Uh, <laughs> we are a part of a, a group of uh, bloggers, podcasters, just uh, comic content creators online uh, that are going by. Uh, we're we're covering the best event ever. Hashtag. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, the 25th anniversary of Eclipso: The Darkness Within, which makes me feel positively ancient. Oh yeah. But uh, we are uh, part of this group who are covering, we're trying to be a very uh, exhaustive uh, re- resource for uh, all things darkness within. And uh, that's where we're, uh, that's where we come in. And you can find the other content on Twitter if you do search under the hashtag best event ever or hashtag Eclipso TDWU25. And uh, yes, we'll uh, come back to that later. Yeah, we'll we'll have we'll we'll go we'll go through everybody who's part of it towards the end, and uh, we'll also include the links in the uh, show notes. Absolutely. Uh, but for us, we had to do the uh, segment of the darkness within that involved Starman. It was four issues, and we are going to concentrate on expanding. We're going to talk about all four issues, but we'll expand on Starman number forty-three from February nineteen ninety-two cover date. Released December 24th, 1992, written by Len Strazuski, penciled in ink by Vince Giorano, colored by Tom McGraw, lettered by Bob Pinaha, edited by Paul Kupperberg. Cover art by Mike Mignola, who we will mention, he did all the covers in this miniseries. Cover price was $1.25 USD, $1.50 Canadian, and 60 pence in the UK. Mm-hmm. I won't try to do the accent again. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but... As we're known to do, we're going to talk about the creators first, and uh, not a whole lot of info on either of these fellas, no. or any of these fellas. Uh, we're going to start with Len Strzewski. Uh He was born February 16th, 1955, maybe in Chicago. Who knows? Uh, Probably on Earth, we're thinking. I would imagine. Uh, now, he graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Journalism from Midwestern University. He received a Master of Arts in the Program for Writers at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a Master of Science in Industrial Relations, in Industrial Relations from Loyola University. He began writing professionally when he was 19. He was a freelance reporter and editor for the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun-Times, and Advertising Age. That's why I'm thinking he might be a Chicago born and bred fellow. Seems like it, yeah. (laughs) And he would break into the comics industry in 1987. And not too long before this happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Artist not for this issue 43, but on the other issues in the miniseries, right? They, They split them up two and two, right? Well, he did. Uh, he did. He did part of the first part and uh, the the third and fourth part. The third and fourth. So this yeah. is actually the main, really more the main artist. The main series, yeah. but not the one. And he was the yeah, and he was like the main Starman artist right. towards the end. So uh, it's his name is John Calamy. His introduction to comics was with issue number twenty three of Amazing Spider Man in April nineteen sixty five cover date. He has vivid memories of his first time. He says, there was magic in those early marvels that no print media has touched since. In my mind's eye, I can still picture the newsstand I bought the comic from, as well as the bus ride home completely absorbed in Disco's, Ditko's wonderful, colorful world. As he worked his way through high school, he initially planned on becoming a priest. That would all change when, during a Jesuit retreat, he co- discovered Jack Kirby's Fourth World comics for the first time. And he says, it was after lights out I could barely make out the pages by the dim reading lamp. Jack's new style blew my mind. I've always loved his work. The idea that there was even more potential beyond the great work I, he'd already given up at Marvel, I had to be a comic book artist. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, he cites uh, several big names as inspiration, uh, with a decidedly Marvel bent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they include uh, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, John Romita, John Buscema, uh, Gene Colan, and uh, Jim Steranko. Uh, when he went to his first comic convention, he showed his work to an editor who told him to <laughs> stop imitating Kirby. Uh, <laughs> after, Which is funny, uh, probably 20 years before they would have told him to start imitating Kirby. Yes, That's please funny. imitate Kirby. <laughs> Um, now, after attending a few conventions and before a trip to New York City, he would actually call the offices of Marvel and DC to inform them that he'd be in town and uh, requesting a uh, maybe a tour around the office. And they both said, yeah, why not? Uh, he actually received a callback from Andy Helfa of DC, who said he'd even take a look at his samples uh, samples of his work while he was in town. Uh, just uh, you know, the same day or the day after, Carl Potts from Marvel called and said the same thing. Nice. So, not bad. Yeah. Uh, now, DC at the time had no work to offer him. However, Marvel was willing to give him a tryout. Now, this consisted of six pages of an, of the Avengers thwarting terrorists at the airport, and uh, he was given one week to complete it. Uh, he recalls, the drawing was awful, but I have a feel for clear storytelling. Uh, fair enough. After that, sure. he got the gig on Alpha Flight, starting with issue number 68, March 1989 which he doesn't remember fondly, that is to say, he thought his work was pretty awful for the duration. He says, when they shipped the pages back to me, I destroyed them as fast as I could. Fan reaction wasn't much better, uh, something John seems to be at peace with. He says, I do hope someday to sit on a panel of the most vilified runs in comics history. I know John Byrne expects to be on the panel, but not. As, but not as much as he thinks he's picked on. He has no clue. Afterwards, I hope to sit with Rob Liefeld and drown our sorrows <laughs> in a few beers. I'll tell him about a letter I read at the Marvel offices from three 10-year-old girls from Jersey who were dropping Alpha Flight unless I was taken off the book. It's hard being distant crayon. Let's see if Rob can top that one. Wow. Uh, and yeah, when you do a search for uh, for John Calamy, you pretty much come up with this kind of stuff about Alpha Flight. Yeah. Um... DC would eventually find some work for John, though, including the tail end of Starman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Vince, uh, Vincent Vince Girano. He was born November 17, 1960, in Buffalo, New York. He, he graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in the State University of New York at Buffalo in 1982. He would then obtain a Master of Fine Art in Syracuse University in 1985. Uh, his career would start in 1985, working for Marvel on uh, their title, Marvel Team-Up. There's issue number 149, January 1985. His first uh, DC work was Haywire, number one, uh, from October 1988. That was a, a fun little series. Uh, yeah, that, I, I think it went 12 issues. It, but I, I don't remember anything, the content of it, but I remember the covers of it for some reason. Yeah, they, they were very, uh, they stood out. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, he worked mainly uh, on monthly uh, Batman titles during the early 90s, which included Batgirl, Legends of the Dark Knight, Shadow of the Bat, uh, there were a bunch of them. There were a lot. <laughs> He contributed to the Amazing Heroes swimsuit special in 1990 because back in the 90s we had those. Yeah, and they are uh, they are just as cringy as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and and obviously he drew at least uh, one issue of this Starman uh, uh, event here, uh, including the one that we will be discussing. That's right. But first, let's talk about the character Starman, or more specifically, Star Men with one mm-hmm. woman. Uh, there was the first, the original Starman was astronomer Theodore Henry Ted Knight. He invented the cosmic rod, which allowed him to fly, dissolve objects, and whatever else was convenient for the story, really. He could do a whole lot of stuff with that rod. His cousin Sandra Knight, who was also the Phantom Lady, convinces him to be a superhero. He first appeared in Adventure Comics number 61 in April 1941, created by Mort Weisinger and Jack Burnley. The first story, though, was written by Gardner Fox. His lady friend was Doris Lee, who was unaware of his superhero persona, and he was a member of the Golden Age Justice Society, but later he was sort of an occasional member of the JSA when the situation called for it, right? Yeah, uh, he wasn't like a core. It didn't, it didn't seem like he was like a core yeah, dude. But uh, he was around. Yes, uh, we're going to go to uh, the David Bowie-inspired star man here, uh, Mikhail Tamas, a.k.a. Michael Thomas. He's a blue-skinned alien who came to Earth to save it from destruction. He first appeared in a series that I have a odd affection for, first issue special. Mm-hmm. Is issue number 12, March 1976, uh, initially with the help of technology, and then later, innately, he can fly around and fire energy bolts from his hands. Um, he's not he's you know, not named after Ted Knight. He's not a, predis- or a successor to, to Ted right. Knight. 
Like he's this more uh, David Bowie Starman. But you know, the one thing I don't understand about him is that he he adopted an Earth English name, Michael Thomas. Yeah, he was still a blue guy. It's, it's not like Marston, It's not like Martian Manhunter who became John Jones, but he looked like a you know a per, you know. <laughs> Why bother? Just keep just keep your alien name. But anyway, uh, <laughs> then there was Starman, the Prince version. This is the spoiled heir to an alien kingdom. Prince Gavin discovers he is a mutant when he's thrown through an airlock by his greedy sister and finds he can breathe in space. He first, yeah, that was nice for him. <laughs> it was, was going to go one of two ways, and it went the, it went yes. the good way. Uh, first appeared in Adventure Comics number 467, January 1980, created by Paul Levitz and Steve Ditko. The mysterious mystic mentor gives him wristbands and a staff through which the prince can channel his power. Yes, and uh, we have uh, this is the Starman that I th- that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, this is a uh, young magazine copy editor, Will Payton. He's mistakenly struck by a beam from a satellite intended to imbue a team called the Power Elite with superpowers. His first appearance was Starman number one. This is the first volume of Starman, uh, October 1988. He was created by Roger Stern and Tom Lyle. Uh, he can fly. He can shape shift a little. His face can you know disguise. Yeah. He can disguise himself pretty good. Uh, he's, he can fire bolts from his hands and you know all that all that happy stuff. Yeah, all all kinds of Starman stuff he does <laughs> whenever the situation calls for it. Uh, the fan favorite Starman that I think a lot of people today think of was. Uh, from the 90s, Jack Knight, the youngest son of Ted Knight, assumes ownership of the cosmic staff. The rod apparently was extended over the years at some point after his brother David is killed while being Starman. He first appeared in Zero Hour Number 1, September 1994, created by James Robinson and Tony Harris. The character was, uh, but he isn't Starman in that Zero Hour. He's just sort no. of exists. Just a dude. Yep. Uh, and he's the cool star man in the Converse sneakers and the bomber jacket who likes all the antiques, and he's real. A hipster before hipsters happened. Yes. And uh, we, we discussed uh, his uh, you know first appearance in our massive zero-hour episode. Mm-hmm. It was Weird Comics History number 20. Um, we also have uh, the girl star man, <laughs> Courtney Whitmore, stepdaughter of Pat Dugan, a.k.a. Stripesy. Uh, the Star Spangled Kid's sidekick, uh, finds Star Spangled Kid's costume and puts it on to annoy her stepfather. Uh, she joins the JSA, and she gets Jack Knight's cosmic staff and changes her name to Stargirl. Her first appearance was Stars and Stripes, Stars and Stripe with, uh, you know, periods after every right. letter. Uh, number Zero from July 1999, and she was created by Jeff Johns and uh, I th- Motor, I think, was the artist on oh, yeah. that. And I, I, we also have uh, what's his face here? We have the one from the Legion of Superheroes, uh, Tom Caller, okay, the, uh, Starman, who is a uh, oh I only know from his from his bits in the John's Justice Society where he was brought back as kind of a schizophrenic. Oh wow! Um, but uh, I don't know a whole lot about him because I don't know a whole lot about Legion. I mean, there were other weird Star Men through the years. Sure. There was a Star Man in a Batman issue from the fifties. There was. Uh... You know, the the name is not that so unique that it doesn't get no. used over and over. But the, these were the ones that at least I felt had, like, uh, similar powers, I guess. It's hard to say. There's really almost no They're part of, like, a lineage, a almost, yeah. sort of. Except, yeah, and... uh, except for the Mikhail Thomas, in a sense. But although later but James on, Robinson brought him in, too. Yeah, later on we find yeah. out that that uh, kind of got his powers through him or something like that, right? There's some, some Everything was connected somehow, I can't remember yeah. exactly, but yeah, he did bring him in. <laughs> Uh, and now we're going to talk about really the star of our story that isn't Starman. It is Eclipso. Uh, this guy first appeared in the House of Secrets number 61, August 1963, created by our guy, Bob Haney and Lee Elias, who is a nice fella, I'm sure, too, or was. I'm positive. Uh, while in the jungle to view a solar eclipse, solar energy scientist Bruce Gordon was at- attacked by a tribal sorcerer named Mophir, who wounded Gordon with a black diamond. Afterwards, Gordon would be transformed into the villainous Eclipso whenever an eclipse occurred. He was named Bruce Gordon after Bruce Wayne and Commissioner Gordon, a DC Comics in-joke. What fun. Uh, Mm -hmm. Eclipso was pretty run-of-the-mill for comics until the very crossover we're dealing with today, The Darkness Within, but we're not going to give away the plot yet. No. Uh, Let's uh, talk about the creator of uh, Eclipso, Mr. Bob Haney. He was born March 15th, 1926 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He would pass in November uh, 25th, 2004 in La Mesa, California. Uh, He's the youngest of three surviving children. He had two older sisters. Uh, His father, Bob Haney Sr., had fought in World War I. He was an engineer. 
His mother was a second-generation German immigrant who had settled in Pennsylvania Dutch country. Uh, for a year during the Great Depression, the Haneys lived in a Hooverville, just north of Philadelphia, on a farm. Uh, that space was uh, being lent to them by a generous farmer. Uh, for uh, folks who don't know, Hoovervilles were shanty towns set up in public parts, parks and empty lots by unemployed people who could not afford to pay rent. Uh, they were named after Herbert Clark Hoover, who was America's 31st president, and he held the office at the beginning of the Great Depression. He was blamed for many of the country's woes. Yeah, probably erroneously, but that's—we don't know. That's that. what happened. Some, yeah. Someone else's discussion. <laughs> Yes. Uh, now, eventually, he moved to Philadelphia after Bob Sr. got a job fixing up uh, foreclosed homes, of which I'm assuming there were many. Right, he had plenty of work, uh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, his father had to routinely change jobs and apartments, which forced Bob Jr. to attend several different grammar schools, uh, which probably led to him having difficulty making friends. So he would throw himself into academics. Oh, yeah. Uh, he moved to the Upper Darby suburbs of Philadelphia when he was around 12 and would stay there until he graduated high school. Bob Sr. would take off sometimes, ostensibly to find better paying work. He was absent from the family for a few years while Bob Jr. was a teenager. Now, Bob Jr. knew about comic books as a teen, of course, but he preferred movies and classic literature. He graduated from high school at age 17 and entered Swarthmore College in rural Pennsylvania on a partial scholarship. Attended for six months, worked in Sun's Shipyard in Lower Delaware seven nights a week on the graveyard shift. Yikes. Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, would enroll in the Navy in 1944, and that's where he first saw and looked at many comics. Haney enrolled incidentally because he was sure he'd be drafted and wanted his choice of assignments. Didn't really work out that way for him. He kind of, they still stuck him where they wanted to stick him. Mm-hmm. He was discharged in 1946 and went back to Swarthmore and finished up by 48. Then he went to Columbia University and got his master's degree in French history in one year. Wow. He's a smart dude. Began a writing career, produced a number of contracted pulp novels under assumed names, and broke into comics in 1948. Bob's first story was College for Murder in Black Cat Number 9, January 1948. Yeah, he wrote for most of the smaller publishers like Fawcett, St. John, and Ace, until the comics code put most of them out of business. In 1955, he connected with DC Comics and wrote the story Frogman's Secret in All-American War Number 17, cover date January 1955. Uh, He created and wrote, without credit, the first appearance of Sergeant Rock and Easy Company in Our Army at War Number 83, that was June 1959, cover date. Uh, He created Eclipso and Metamorpho, and depending on who you ask, he co-created the Doom Patrol. (laughs) (laughs) If you you would ask Arnold Drake, he would say, no, 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 he didn't. Haney's relationship with DC would last almost 30 years, during which he wrote pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of Zany Haney's stories were said to have occurred on Earth H. The H stands for Haney. Uh, it's said that if you were a DC Comics writer back probably in the pre-crisis time when continuity was, you know, <laughs> something that they discussed, uh, you'd receive a Bible of the seemingly infinite Earths, and among them you would find Earth H. And uh, perhaps the the most important thing about Bob Haney is, if you were to read Wikipedia and believe what it said, his brother his, Haney's brother-in-law was Ned Chase, the father of Chevy Chase. So that's a beautiful connection right there, uh, right mm-hmm. to right to uh, uh, Animal House or whatever you know. With, uh, we gotta we gotta make uh, Christmas vacation. We gotta make sure to tag Chevy Chase on this one. There you go. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be very <laughs> like, oh yes, my uncle-in-law or whatever the hell. Uh, I, I, you know, I gotta say, I would do anything to see that DC Comics Bible, or even just the Earth Definitely. H, the Earth H H page is probably uh, pretty hilarious. I'm sure. So let's talk about the comic. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna do a brief rundown of the comics that we're not expanding on. Uh, this little mini series, The Darkness Within, at least where Starman's concerned, starts with Starman number forty-two, cover date January nineteen ninety-two, released November twenty-six, nineteen ninety-one. This is titled Star Shadows Part One. Sunspots by Straczynski and Calamy and Smith. Each issue we'll be discussing today had a cover by Mike Mignola, so just keep that in mind that the interior does not look like the cover, uh, which is kind of important in this issue in particular, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, Starman, Will Payton's powers are going wonky. He isn't sure why. His face continually changes shape, and his dual identity looks to have been discovered by his girlfriend? 
without context and in light of what's to come, it's difficult to say for certain what the relationship really is. It seems yeah. like she is, but we'll see why we don't. We're not sure later on. <laughs> yeah. Now Peyton begins. He continues to overheat, and he knows he's going to have to check in with Kitty Faulkner at Star Labs to see what's up. At Star, Kitty is looking over Starman's results while greeting her new associate. Bruce Gordon, who wears a, an uncharacteristic mullet for the first part of the story. Why do they keep hiring this guy? I mean, he keeps, uh, yeah. he keeps turning into a clipso, you know what I mean? He's, like, he's a liability. <laughs> Peyton arrives with a crash and awakens several hours later to find he'd been brought to an examination table by Faulkner and Gordon. Gordon attaches a... Uh, it looks like a, like a normal plug. Yeah. Like he sticks it into his face. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah, and it causes our man to react pretty angrily. He yanks the plug out of his mug and fries the wires. Kitty tries to calm him down by listing off Bruce's credentials, leaving one out. <laughs> no, no, he actually does tell him. Uh, leading, uh, he's a leading expert on stellar and solar energy and uh, all that good stuff. So I guess that's why they keep hiring him. He's the leading expert on things. Yeah, there's nobody even close. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got to figure there's a point at which the risk outweighs the potential reward, though, you know, because he is, of course, right. Eclipse. And it's like it's bound to happen. I mean, you know, it's all you need is something to pass in front of the sun and you're done here. And you're done. Yeah. A plane could go by. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so she reveals that Gordon knew it knows about her own dual existence as mild-mannered Kitty Faulkner and also she of the ugly character design Rampage, big orange lady. Uh, Starman comes around, decides to hear Gordon out, but not before exchanging origin stories for, you know, the reader's benefit primarily. Gordon, for who, for whatever reason, no longer has a mullet, suddenly just kind of fell off, Gone. suggests yeah. that he and Starman rocket into orbit to test him without environmental interference. And Will thinks this is a splendid idea. Before he leaves, though, he and Kitty break away so they can reveal their love for one another. So that girl from the beginning was... I think, they, I think the two of them must have broken up off-panel. We didn't see, you know what I mean? That was, <laughs> that was in between when he came to Star Labs and left another girl. But Gotta be. Yeah, she, she's out of the story now. He left a note. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dear lady, goodbye. Anyway, uh, so the pair launch into space where they run afoul of Lobo. And, uh, oh yeah, Gordon turns into a Eclipso. Uh, go figure. That was a no surprise. Way. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Starman number 43. This is Star Shadows Part 2 Blue Moon by Straczewski and uh, Giorano. The cover by Mark Mignola is pretty dynamic shot of Starman punching Lobo right in the chest. An explosive burst behind him while a giant Eclipso looks on. Uh, so Starman's costume, it's uh, black with red boots and gloves and a big white star in the center. So he kind of looks like a Converse all-star sneak. Yeah, really. <laughs> kind of a combo of like a David Bowie plus a superhero. I don't know what it would be, but it's really weird. And a basketball shoe. But he, he doesn't have the, uh, the, the peanut butter and jelly costume I like oh. so much. Uh, now, the, the splash page shows a very fat and slovenly Lobo with a weird uh, tooth-to-gum ratio mm. leaning against a bar while the remnants of a glass of beer drain into his lap. Uh, Lobo was created by Roger Silfer or Sliffer? I think it's Silfer. It's Silfer. Yeah. Oh, Roger Silfer and uh, Keith Giffen, and he first appeared in Omega Men number three, cover date June 1983. He's a uh, he's an unkillable interstellar interstellar bounty hunter with a rude attitude. He, he sort of looks like a super muscular, white-skinned Gene Simmons. Yeah. Uh, now this is actually a flashback scene, as a helpful caption indicates. The title "Blue Moon," or rather, the song from whence we get the title, is being sung for the audience by a green worm with a monkey's head. <laughs> now, the green bartender sheepishly brings Lobo another beer. Chris, that, that's not beer. It's in a beer glass. It has a tail coming out of it. Uh, well, whatever it is, Lobo doesn't drink it. Instead, he kicks the bartender out of the panel. Theme! I need, uh, even thoughtless bullying can start to bore me. And then he drinks the beer. Uh, it's not beer. <laughs> and well, after chewing something crunchy in his beverage, Lobo lets out a loud belch. Frag being bored, and frag that stupid song. Lobo beats up the lounge singing Snake Monkey Guy and ties him into a knot. Much better, but over much too quickly. And then a small blue turtle wearing a utility belt taps on Lobo's shoulder with a cane. Yeah, uh, Lobo immediately swings around with a punch, but he connects with the air because the turtle's very short. And the turtle withdraws into his into his shell, and he wants to talk business. Lobo says, business? Forget it, shellhead. Lobo punts the turtle many yards with a boink and says, just be glad I don't like turtle soup. 
is this the shredder or something? This Lobo doesn't talk like the Lobo I remember. It's kind of funny. Kind of sounds a little weird, don't you think? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's uh, had too much of that tail beverage to uh, drink today. Mm. The turtle careens off some walls, ricocheting back and forth with a bing, bing, bong. And the shell, when the shell comes to arrest, the turtle thrusts a hand, out a hand with a fistful of pink money in it. Yes, he says, I have credits and lots of them. Did you say credits? As in money? Uh-huh. Well, what the hell did Lobo think the turtle said when he wanted to talk business? You know, do <laughs> you think it was time to go to the bathroom together? I mean, Maybe. come on. Yeah, of course money was involved. But now, of course, Lobo is interested. Yes, Turtle says, much better. I understand you sometimes accept contracts related to the disposition of other individuals. That is the most generalized description of bounty hunting I've ever heard. I mean, it could be anything. So. You could do anything at all with that. Uh, Lobo says, yeah, so? Then I offer you such a contract. Have you heard of a planet in the solar system known as Earth? Oh, no, not that, Mudball. Turns out the turtle wants Lobo to kill Eclipso because he's totally evil. How evil? One billion credits worth of evil. That's evil. That's pretty evil. <laughs> Lobo hops on his space hog and bids the turtle adieu. Thanks for the advance. I'll be back before your shell needs a new waxing. And you better be here with the rest of the credits, or I'll learn to like turtle soup. Now Lobo exhausts, uh, Lobo's exhaust sends the turtle flying. When Lobo's way out of sight, the turtle seems to say, The fool! and crumbles into dust. Then his wispy blue essence travels into space to meet a wispy green essence, and they have a little chat. These are the Lords of Chaos. Yeah, the green one says... The Lords of Chaos empowered Eclipso with the mystical ability sufficient to destroy planet Earth. But he failed us, letting his own ego get in way of our more important goals. All he had to do was bring chaotic destruction to a single lowly planet. But instead, he engaged the one called the Phantom Stranger in a contest of wills. And because of that, he let us down, giving us nothing but humiliation and defeat in exchange for the power and trust. Yes, and that all happened in the Phantom Stranger miniseries from 1988 by Paul Kupperberg and Mike Magnola as a helpful caption indicates. Yeah, the caption's even written by the editor, Paul Kupperberg, so everything comes full circle with this story. How about that? The Blue Lord of Chaos uh, responds with, Eclipso will learn the price for failing the Lords of Chaos. And they both laugh together with a, Oh, Meanwhile, Lobo's headed to Earth. He's really looking forward to some tequila. Uh, he must like to chew on things in his beverages. On crunchy things, yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and now we're brought back to where the last issue left off. Lobo crashes into Bruce Gordon's spaceship, sending it careening towards the moon. He says... Where'd you learn to drive, Uranus? Gee, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Oh, you fragging Phoebe. Look at my gargle supply. Uh, the crash broke his bottle of something gross, probably. Uh, he says, stuff your excuses, Clyde. You just ruined my day. I think this might be Lobo's understudy. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the normal one. <laughs> this is the stunt double. Uh, now Lobo floats over to Starman and punches him in the face. I've got business I gotta attend to, but there's always time for scragging some Phoebe in tights. Ow! That's smart. Big time. Who is this guy? I may not know all the outer space etiquette, but I doubt a sucker punch is acceptable behavior. Etiquette? I'm Lobo. I don't need no stinking etiquette. <sighs> uh, Starman smashes Lobo against his space bike, then gets distracted thinking about Bruce's damaged space jet. Uh, when he looks toward the ship, Lobo punches him again, sending him flying. Follow the bouncing fist, Phoebe. I wasn't even looking. Yeah, I guess that wasn't fair, but I liked it. Well, I didn't. Yeah, neither did I. <laughs> Starman gives Lobo a kick and a punch and lures him towards the moon so he can check on Bruce. They slam into the dusty surface on the, of the moon with a poof. Lobo pounces towards Starman, but on but on the moon's lessened gravity, Starman hops away with a boing. I thought he could fly. Yeah, maybe he forgot for a minute. Uh, Starman gives a glance at the space jet and deems everything is looking fine. He thinks to himself, looks like Gordon's okay. I'm free to deal with this jerk. But Gordon's not okay. He's turned into Eclipso. And luckily, had the forethought to stash his Eclipso costume <laughs> and the Black Diamond in, on the spaceship. 
you know, just in case. You never know. It might come up. It seems to you come up know. every other week anyway. So now <laughs> Calypso says, yes, the transformation is complete, and the fool Gordon is gone. He thought he defeated me, but I was never truly gone. I have been influencing him to hide my clothing, and this, my black beauty, the key to my power. Now a shaft of black light uh, shoots from Gordon's space jet, uh, making a crackle sound, which uh, distracts Starman. Does he have ADD? He gets easily distracted by things. He's always looking away, isn't he? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> now, Lobo takes this opportunity to cheat again and punch him in the stomach. I mean, I can't blame him. It, it, only, gets, no. it only gets unlimited opportunities. Sure, it's uh, an opening. Lobo says, you never learn, do you, geek? Oof. And then Stallman lets loose a fist beam that goes fashwash at Lobo. Wee! He's got energy bolts! That hurt bad. I can feel something strange happening with my body energy. Maybe he'll back off if I heat things up a bit. At, that, at which time Stallman shoots flames at his hands uh, from his hands at Lobo, which is a you know, thing he can do. I guess I, that's yeah. new to <laughs> Lobo says, well, singe my whiskers. <laughs> this puppy thinks he'll bother me. It is to laugh. Where is the real Lobo? What have they done with him? <laughs> I don't know. The guy talks so weird. Uh, <laughs> Eclipso's watching this fight with Glee. He says, ah, Starman, you are my greatest creation, my perfect opposite. You are light to my darkness, a balance of energy. The more energy you expend, the better I feel. I meant you to be my living battery, a storehouse of energy against the works of enemies. And I have many enemies. He steps out of the ship with a classic bubble space helmet on, which I thought was a nice touch. Yes. He says, uh, he thinks to himself, to save my resources, I must enter this battle. And Starman isn't having much luck against Lobo. He gets, lets out a super energy blast that goes kavoosh, and it even destroys the ground beneath Lobo. Yeah, and Starman thinks to himself, can't pay attention to how much it hurts. Gotta end this quick. Is this all you got, Star Baby? Uh, <laughs> Lobo runs through the blast and punches Starman in the face again. Lobo has Starman in the ground, but something is wrong here. Yeah, Starman thinks. Erg can't fight anymore. Too drained. Do you ever think to yourself in ergs? I never. I've never thought erg. Maybe an ug, but never an erg. Uh, yeah, but I, I never also, have guttural thoughts. I've never had the same problems as Starman's having right yeah. here. So never had Lobo sitting on your chest. Yeah, <laughs> Lobo says. Give it up, Goober. The heat trick didn't work before, and it won't work now. Which causes Starman to think, feels like I'm coming apart in flame. This is it. My whole energy structure is coming apart. Then a black, ble ble a black beam blasts the area with a zap. This separates Lobo and Starman and sends them flying in opposite directions. And Lobo says, hot time in the old town. Uh, and then Starman thinks... <laughs> <laughs> Starman thinks What happened? That beam stopped my energy disintegration On the last page A triumphant Eclipso stands on the wing of the space jet uh, The earth is partially looming behind him Eclipso says Howl if you will at the dark of the moon Huh? Lobo says Hey, this is my <laughs> lucky day It's all moon face <laughs> and the, our, our caption says Next, more hitting, more fighting What more do you need? How about some like normal dialogue? Uh, that'll be the other Perhaps. people. The way these people are talking is very strange to me. Uh, <laughs> as, as I think, Chris, you know that Lobo is one of my favorite characters from the next. Absolutely. And this is nothing like any Lobo I remember from that time. <laughs> but okay. Uh, now we go on to Starman number forty-four, the cover date March nineteen ninety-two, released January twenty-eight, nineteen ninety-two. Titled Star Shadows Part 3, Dark of the Moon. Ah, that's where they got the name. There he is. By Straczewski and Kalami. Uh, we were promised a fight last issue, and this issue we get a fight. Oh boy, we get a fight, Chris. Mm -hmm. Fight, fight, fight. It's pretty much all fight. Uh, all fight all the time. Pretty, I mean, literally, like, there are 22 <laughs> pages in a comic, like 20 of them are fighting. Uh, <laughs> during the scuffle, Eclipso finds out Lobo is hired by the Lords of Chaos. And when Starman comes to, he joins in the fight, because that's what you got to do. Uh, but mainly to keep Bruce Gordon's body from being battered too badly. He still thinks he can get Bruce Gordon back. Starman flies in, flies an injured Eclipso to some other area of the moon and tries to reason with the man within. 
Eclipso agrees to cooperate and bring Bruce back to the forefront if Starman will help him defeat Lobo. Eclipso sucks up some of Starman's energy or something, and then there's more fighting. Starman uses misdirection to make Lobo believe he's killed Eclipso, and Lobo takes off. Then Eclipso recapitulates on his deal with Starman. Uh, no Go figure. I mean, yeah. this is a, Eclipso, the villain god here. <laughs> then Eclipso hops back in the space jet and takes off for Earth and Kitty Faulkner, but Starman mm. is in hot pursuit. That takes us to the final issue of Starman. Yeah, not Star just Man. of this miniseries, yes. but of Starman. <laughs> Yes, this is Starman number 45, cover date April 1992, released February 25th, 1992. This is Star Shadows Part 4, Starlight, Star Bright, by uh, Strzyzewski and Kellamy. Uh Bruce Gordon's space jet arrives at the laboratory, and Kitty runs out to greet it. Eclipso removes his space helmet to reveal he is... Eclipso! Hey. <laughs> Kitty turns into Rampage and gives Eclipso a swat. But with his black diamond, she's quickly brought under control. Starman plummets to Earth and runs to a payphone to make a quick call to the JLE, the Justice League Europe. Uh, back at the lab, Eclipso is holding Kitty as bait for Starman. He intends to use the laboratory equipment to steal all of Starman's energy and store it for a rainy day. Starman thwarts Eclipso's plan by busting in through a wall instead of walking in through the front door. Oh, I never could have figured that one out. That old trick. <laughs> uh, he, he shoots the black diamond from Eclipso's hand and rescues Kitty. Uh, Eclipso gets his hand back on the black diamond and siphons more of Starman's energy. And just then, Power Girl shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this time, she's wearing one of the worst costume redesigns she's ever had. It's uh, like a yellow and white wetsuit, sort of like yeah. sort of like a color reverse vigilante uniform in a way, right? From uh, Marvel yeah. Woman's Vigilante, and her hair is teased out like a lion's mane. It, it, it's huge. It's how she fits through a door. Yeah. It is. It is not good. But uh, you know, this was <laughs> uh, I guess maybe appropriate for its time. Uh, Power Girl punches Eclipso in the face and stops him from sucking up Starman's energy. Uh, Power Girl then helps Starman to his feet while making a comment about the staff of the Justice League of Europe not speaking English. It was sort of, sort of they're in Bruce. They're <laughs> in France. You're in Europe, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, maybe you should learn the language there. How about that? That makes sense. It was just like, what a weird comment, but all right, that's fine. Um, Eclipso is very annoyed and zaps Power Girl with his Eclipso's zapping. And uh, <laughs> Kitty grabs a plasma gun from the wall and zaps Eclipso. Everyone's getting zapped. Then Power Girl and Starman begin tossing Eclipso back and forth like they're playing keep away with each other. Or as Starman points out, volleyball, even though it's nothing like volleyball. Uh, Kitty watches this display and wonders how Starman, a.k.a. Will Payton, could ever love her when there are great women like Power Girl hanging around. <laughs> Power Girl gets Eclipso in a chokehold. And Starman... Puts up his stolar burst or something, whatever, and that restores Bruce Gordon back to non-Eclipso state. Later, Gordon explains to Starman that his power fluctuations were due to a case of cosmic puberty. Okay. Sure. Uh, Everything's settled now. Power Girl flies off, but not without kissing Starman on the cheek. They're, They're friends. They're just in the Justice League. Later, Starman's whispering sweet nothings into Kitty's ear, but she pushes him away and, they, and says they need to break up because Power Girl is hotter. Basically. I, I mean, I, you know, I understand. You know, <laughs> there'd be a little bit of low self-esteem, but come on, she just flew away. You know, give me a break. Yep. Uh, Starman tells Kitty she's the only gal for him, and on the final p- splash page of the series, the two embrace with a very weirdly detailed moon in the background yes. framing their heads. That's all she wrote. That's it for this little mini-series and for Starman, and we will leave the rest of the darkness within to the other fellas in the uh, group. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we still have our due diligence here. Indeed. We're going to wrap up our creators. And, again, there wasn't as much as we're accustomed to here. No. Uh, back with uh, Len Strzewski here, he uh, wrote The Justice Society of America. In uh, 1991, Len wrote a uh, eight-part Justice Society of America miniseries, which would be the first time we'd seen them in print since Christ's on Infinite Earths. The story was a flashback tale to the 1950s. According to Comic Book Legends Revealed, uh, on number 13 from August 25th, 2005, which makes me feel really old, uh, this project was uh, just meant to keep he and several artists busy as they waited for the launch of DC's Impact line of comics, which were like The Fly... uh, I remember... yeah. Yeah. And, um, and and boy, I bet you were waiting for that too. There were I remember it had a cool look to it, but 
They did. Comics they did. were dull. They were not that interesting. Yeah, I, I never could get into it. Um, now, the uh, this miniseries was an unexpected hit, which led DC uh, led to DC deciding to pull the team into the present, uh, which they facilitated through the Armageddon 2001 event, which we've been threatening to talk about, and we eventually will. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they would then launch an ongoing series, well, ongoing with quotes, which was going on for 10 issues. <laughs> the book was not canceled due to low sales, nor DC's zero-hour plans. However, Len recalls, it was a capricious decision made personally by Mark, Mike Carlin because he didn't like Mike Parabek's artwork or my writing and believed that senior citizen superheroes was not what DC should be publishing. He made his opinion clear to me several times after the cancellation. Wow. And uh, as we say every time this comes up, just why in the hell would DC? Why did they greenlight it in the in the first place? Yeah, what changed over in the, the ten months? In ten you know, months, I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Len would leave comics in 1997 to go teach in the journalism department at Columbia College Chicago. He did uh, briefly return to comics in 2013 to relaunch Terror Tots, which I guess was something he had done <laughs> along with artist Paul Frick. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the original or the relaunch, so that's something to look nope. into. Uh, wrap up on John Calamy. Alongside Starman, John drew the four-part mini Nexus the Liberator for Dark Horse in 1992. In 1995, he drew a few issues of Hardcore, that's H-A-R-D, Core for Valiant. Contributed to the Amazing Spider-Man Super Special, June 1995, specifically Planet of the Symbiotes Part 1. He drew two issues of Venom, Sinner Takes All in 1995. John is credited with having contributed to the all-new official handbook of the Marvel Universe in 2006, but this may have been repurposing of old artwork. In fact, I suspect yeah, it was, but I, like, I don't know. And beyond that, it really seems like John hasn't done any comic work since the mid-1990s. In the interview on AlphaFlight.net, from which we've culled a lot of our information about Calamy, he well, said this. Share, yeah, yeah I mean, that was really the, one of the only places where he talked about himself at all. Uh, he said this about his own work. All this may sound like I am putting the blame on others. Not true. I'm just pointing out what I was not capable of pulling off. I didn't have the necessary chops, and I shouldn't have been working. The irony is, now I have the chops, and there's no chance I can get work. So that's kind of a sad thing, but hopefully mm -hmm. doing all right. He currently lives in DeKalb, Illinois. Yes, uh, Vince Giorano. He kept busy during the 90s. Uh, looks like he drew whatever game to him. Uh, he drew a whole lot of the Manhunter Volume 2 uh, series. This is uh, from 1994 to 1995. It went 12 issues plus a zero issue. And that's the one that's basically Spawn. Yeah. <laughs> or it looks a lot like Spawn, I should say. Um, he did the uh, Tangent Comics Sea Devil one-shot in 1997 and a uh, whole lot of Batman. Uh, his last original comics work appears to be an instructional manual called uh, Impact. Pack University number one in 2005, and now uh, he's he, an amazing artist. He's, he's like a he's a fine artist. He creates uh, and sells paintings through his website, which is vincentgiorano.com, and they are like ridiculously super detailed and, and amazing. They're really good. I mean, he does oh, landscapes. He does people. I think he actually. I, I might have seen some sculpture, although I might have imagined that. But definitely the paintings. Are oh, terrific. amazing work. Uh, oh, wow. I, I recommend anyone who likes to see artwork go check it out. Uh, you know, definitely he's in his wheelhouse, as they say. So don't don't feel too badly for Mr. Giorano. Yes. Now we'll do a little more about Eclipso, the, that guy. Uh, it turns out that he came back quite a bit in the DC Universe. We don't want to give away the ending of this particular event. That's for the other fine people involved in the hashtag best event ever. But suffice to say, we will reveal that Eclipso doesn't win, okay? Spoilers! <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry if I ruined it, but uh, following The Darkness Within, Eclipso starred in his own titular series, lasting for 18 issues plus an annual, cover dated November 1992 to April 1994. This was written initially by Keith Giffen and Robert Lauren Fleming, then just Fleming, uh, drawn by a few people, including Bart Sears, Luke McDonnell, and Ted McKeever, and a couple other people, too. Eclipso captures the South American country of Parador by possessing them one at a time. The U.S. sends Bruce Gordon and his fiancée Mona and Cave Carson to hey. investigate. Yeah, but Cave Carson breaks his leg early on and he doesn't show up for the rest of the series. <laughs> uh, ultimately, the Phantom Stranger fuses the Black Diamond Shards back to the original state, which we know as the Heart of Darkness. This seems to make everything better. 
Why not? Uh, in a Spectre ongoing, written by former theology student John Ostranda, it is revealed that the Spectre is not the first embodiment of the Wrath of God, but a replacement for Eclipso. It's uh, suggested that Eclipso represented God's, God's revenge, while the Spectre was more about vengeance. Huh. Uh, or as the comic put it, Eclipso was responsible for Noah's flood, while the Spectre was responsible for the angel of death killing all of Egypt's firstborn children. So you get it now? That, cl now that, clears, that clears it all yeah, up. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, at the end of this series, the Spectre destroys the Haunted Darkness and Eclipso's base on the dark side of the moon, fixing everything forever and ever. <laughs> Until 2003, <laughs> uh, for, when he, when Eclipso came back for the JSA arc, Princes Princes of Darkness, that has Eclipse teamed up with bad dudes Mordru and Obsidian. Uh, when Eclipso kills Yolanda Montez, aka Wildcat, her cousin Alex liquefies 999 of the 1,000 Black Diamond shards and injects them into his body, uh, leaving one shard to use for summoning Eclipso. How the Black Diamond came back, and furthermore, <laughs> was back to being shards again, they do not say. No, and no one asks, I have a feeling. Uh, <laughs> Alex controls Eclipso using tattooed glyphs on his body and becomes a modernized Eclipso, sort of, when it's convenient. He teams up with some anti-heroes led by Black Adam during the JSA storyline Black Rain. That's R-E-I-G-N, not Pouring Rain. When one of his tattoo glyphs is broken by a scratch, Alex commits suicide rather than unleashing Eclipso into the world. This is significant because it means there's only one black diamond left, not a thousand. All the rest of them are in Alex, right? He injected them yeah. into himself. Which is how things were left at the end of the Spectre, sort of. But that's how, Kinda. sort of how things were in the beginning. So we're sort of back to the original Eclipso, theoretically. But anyway, it's irrelevant because in the Countdown to Mystery series, which we will talk about in a minute from 2008, Eclipso's followers dig up Alex Montez's body and distill the Black Diamond gunk from his veins, or something like that. Uh, yeah. they, they put it back together. Uh, you know, they uh, pour it into a form, and you know, whatever. <laughs> How do you do that with a diamond? <laughs> they uh, put it in their easy bake oven. From this series, we also learned that the Black Diamond was mined from Apocalypse, and Eclipso was created by Darkseid. So there's that too. All uh, comes together. Yeah, right. <laughs> really. He's, 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 he's the agent of uh, God's revenge, and he's created by Dark Side. He's everything, anything you want him to be. Mm -hmm. In 2005, Eclipso takes over Superman by exploiting his feelings for Lois Lane during the two part story Lightning Strikes Twice. Captain Marvel would take him down, being that his powers are magic based, and ultimately the Spectre, at this time Crispus Allen, would force him back into the Black Diamond Shard remaining from the fallout with Alex Montez. Now, the Black Diamond shows up again in the 6 plus 1 special issue series, Day of Vengeance, from 2006. This time, it's in Jean Loring's cell at, the, at Arkham Asylum, and, uh, well, we know what happens to her. Yeah. <laughs> this is after, this is following, uh, this is part of uh, Identity Crisis. Right. Um, now, she's eventually... Oh. Uh, I was just going to say, just, just to brush it up, you know, she killed uh, Ray Palmer's... Wife, uh, wife, or ex. -wife. Oh no, she was Ray Palmer. Oh, I'm sorry, I got, I got it back. Yeah. Killed Sue Dibney, uh, Sue Dibney. Ralph Dibney's wife, uh, and turned out that she was crazed. It was a whole thing. Anyway, she ended up in Arkham Asylum. That's that's the, what the mm -hmm. long and the short of it. Now she's eventually tossed into a non-decaying orbit around Earth by Nightshade. Uh, in the pages of Infinite Crisis, this turns out to have all been an elaborate plot by Alexander Luther Jr. Uh, she eventually gets over it. And Eclipso is sent into orbit around the sun. Yeah. Uh, in that previously mentioned series, Countdown to Mystery from 2008, Eclipso corrupts Plastic Man, the Creeper, and Dove, or and and it sets some magic. What's it, Magi? Yeah, Magi. Yeah. Yeah, the Magi. They they set them on the task of finding the rest of the shattered Black Diamond. Uh, they just can't let that thing go. No. Nope. Uh, Eclipso takes over Bruce Gordon again, but <laughs> Gordon is able to maintain some control with the struggle. Uh, with the Spectre, again, this is Crispus Allen. With the Spectre's help, Gordon is able to suppress Eclipso, but they cannot be separated. Now we go ahead two more years during their brightest day event in 2010. A mysterious being known as the Entity tells Jay to help her brother Obsidian balance the darkness. As the Entity says this, a, gr a grinning vision of Eclipso appears behind Jade. Eclipso reawakens with Bruce. Uh, within Bruce, destroys Diablo Island and subsequently kidnaps Shade, Arcata, Nightshade, Shadow Thief, and a French supervillainess named Bette Noir, and a Canadian superhero named Dark Crow, all of whom possess shadow-based abilities. 
After possessing a batch of reserved Justice Leaguers, Eclipso reveals that his plan is to kill God. So yeah. it's pretty ambitious. Just that. Yeah. Uh, Eclipso tortures Zoriel, whose screams draw the attention of, again, the Christmas Allen Spectre. The Spectre follows the screams to the moon, where technically they should not be heard, and is killed by Eclipso, who absorbs his power. With his newfound abilities, Eclipso reveals that God relies on the collective love of humanity in order to stay alive, and that by destroying the Earth, Eclipso will ultimately kill God once and for all. So that's what works for him. Mm-hmm. Just as the members of the JLA prepared to wage a counterattack, Eclipso destroys the moon, apparently dooming all life on Earth. Eclipso seems to kill Donna Troy, the strongest remaining hero, but then it all turns out to be an illusion conjured up by Blue Lantern Saint Walker, putting, who puts you, Eclipso in a state of euphoria. The Adam and Starman break Eclipso's link to the brainwashed slaves, and then everyone piles on Eclipso, defeating him. Yeah, that was kind of the fi- one of the last uh, storylines in Justice League of America before the New 52. Oh, yeah. And, uh... And speaking of the new 52, Eclipso, <laughs> you can't keep a good whatever he is down. Uh, he, he would come back twice. Uh, a member of Team 7, Alex Montez, is a doctor at Arkham Asylum who purports to be a good guy, but uh-uh, he's Eclipso. Nope. Yeah. In uh, Justice League 3001, Terry Magnus is brought to Lady Styx, who transforms the former into her new servant, Eclipso. Uh, Post-New 52, uh, I would, yeah, after New 52 and into Rebirth, yeah. Uh, in the recent Justice League vs. Suicide Squad event in the winter of 2016, Maxwell Lord becomes possessed by Eclipso. Uh, he possesses most of the Suicide Squad and a bunch of other heroes, but is defeated by Killer Frost. She creates an ice prism or something. Uh, <laughs> Eclipso gets blasted with light, basically. And uh, as we know, that is the only way to defeat him. Yeah, whatever it is, you guys got to hit him, hit him with a hard... Blast of bright light and Eclipso is goes away for sounds like about two years, right? That, that's, yeah, yeah. Seems to be yeah. about the shelf life for Eclipso. <laughs> then they got to drag him out again. But uh, that's cool. I like Eclipso. I think it's a cool character. Yeah. I remember oh, yeah. him from the '80s, and I vaguely remembered this uh, series before we read it. Um, although when I finally got it, I realized I didn't read as much of it as I thought I had. But, uh, <laughs> me either. <laughs> it was it was cool, you know. It's it's all right. Never believe me. There are a lot worse comics out there. Uh, oh, certainly. And we read four of them uh, for this episode. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the hook for the episode, we want to talk about other crossovers that occurred in annuals. You know, this is yes. sort of an interesting thing where they're able to have these these large form stories without affecting the the week to week continuity of the comics that are coming out uh, from DC, Marvel, or theoretically any publisher that wanted to do it. They don't really do this anymore. No, they uh, don't. Again, I, I really wish they would. But uh, so where it applies here, we're going to talk about just a bunch of our favorites or that ones that existed. Best uh, remembered. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way. Great way to put it, Chris. We should, I should leave you to the, uh, <laughs> to the commentary. Uh, where it applies, and as much as could be done, I'm only going to mention the story from the issue related to the crossover event. Some of the annuals are anthologies. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, usually one of the stories is, you know, a uh, character goes to the store. Uh, yeah. Another one will be, you know, classic fight or the team up. And then the, the other one here in this case would it's have pertinent. been... Uh, pertinent to the to the crossover. So we're starting off with the Evolutionary War from Marvel. That was 1998. In this story, the High Evolutionary unleashes attacks all over the world to guide the way of human evolution. Part one was an X Factor Annual number three by Louise Simonson and Terry Shoemaker. Part two was in the Punisher Annual by Mike Barron and Mark Teixeira, and another related story in that by Mark Gruenwald and Paris Collins. Part 3, Silver Surfer Annual Number 1 by Steve Engelhart and Joe Staten. Part 4, New Mutants Annual Number 4 by Louise Simonson and June Brigman. Yeah, Part 5 would be Fantastic Four Annual Number 21 by Steve Engelhart and Kieran Doya. Part 6, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 22 by Mark Gruenwald and Ron Lim. Part 7, X-Men Annual Volume uh, Volume 1 of X-Men, so Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 12 by Mark Gruenwald and Ron Lim. Uh, part 8, Web of Spider-Man Annual Number 4 by Mark Grunewald and Ron Lim. <laughs> Busy fellas. Busy fellas for this. Uh, you'll, you'll see a couple of those as you go in the annual. Some of these guys had to do a lot of duty to make these work. Uh, part 9 of this was West Coast Avengers Annual Number 3 by Steve Engelhart and Al Milgram. Part 10, the Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 8 by Mark Grunewald and Martin, Ron Lim. Uh, 
Hmm. Part 11, Avengers Annual number 17. Two related stories in here. One by Walter Simonson and Mark Bright. Another by Mark Ruinwald and Ron Lim. And they all culminate in the biggest one of all. <laughs> Alf, Alf Annual number one by Michael Gallagher and Dave Manick. Yeah, that was that. I believe that was that was the reason they did the whole event, right? Was for the yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also have a uh, Marvel did uh, Atlantis Attacks. This was 1989. Uh, under the influence of Set the Serpent God, the Atlanteans launch a massive assault on the surface world. Starts with Part One, Silver Surfer Annual number two by Steve Englehart and Mark Ben. Part 2, Iron Man Annual Number 10 by David Michelini and Paul Smith. There is also an interlude, Marvel Comics Presents Number 26. This is a story written by Peter David and Jeff Purves. We are Purves. Uh, this is where uh, the Mr. Fix-It version of the Hulk right. battles a killer whale. Uh, part 3 would happen in X-Men Annual Number 13 by Terry Austin and Mike Vosberg. Uh, part four, The Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 23 by Jerry Conway, David Michelini, and Rob Liefeld. Part five, The Punisher Annual Number 2 by Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley. You can hear those names a lot coming up. Part yeah. six, The Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 9 by Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley. <laughs> da- uh, part seven, Daredevil Annual 5, which is mislabeled as Annual Number 4. That's interesting. By, yeah, by uh, Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley. Uh, part eight, Avengers Annual Number 18 by Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley. Uh, another interlude, this is New Mutants Number 76 by Louise Simonson and Rich Buckler. And this features the return of Namor, uh, consumption of tuna fish sandwiches, and intro of my Monster summoning horn. Summoning horn. Oh, okay. Uh, sure. Do you, do you get the impression that like uh, uh, creators just like ditched this event partway through, and it was all up to uh, Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley to finish it? <laughs> the way the way the rest of it goes. But anyway, we'll... it's like you figure there was like a memo put on everyone's desk, and yeah. then when the time came, like two dudes were sitting at the table. Yeah, they were just like, "Oh, where did everyone go? All right, I guess we'll have to." Do... <laughs> So, part nine of the New Mutants Annual Number Five. The story there was written by Peter Sanderson, drawn by Mark Bagley. Hey. Part ten, X Factor Annual Number Four. Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley. <laughs> part eleven, Web of Spider-Man Annual Number Five. Sanderson and Bagley. And there was uh, the final interlude for this was Avengers West Coast Number Fifty Six by John Byrne. Yes, part twelve, Avengers West Coast Annual Number Four. We're by a. Uh... Sanderson and Bagley. Uh, Part 13, Thor Annual 14, Sanderson and Bagley. Uh, Part 14, Fantastic Four Annual Number 22 by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. Uh, There's also Mark Gruenwald and Tom Morgan and Peter Sanderson and Mark Bagley. And, I mean, if you're wondering how they could do all this work, these are all stories within anthologies. They're staggered, yeah. (laughs) They're not Uh, all the same month. Exactly, yeah. They're different months. So, so it's it's, I mean, it, it still comes out to a lot of work. I'm sure they had to, you know... Uh, work hard to do it, but yeah, that's, sure. that's, if these were all issues in the same month, it would not have been possible without doing stick figures. Uh, now, here's the fan favorite: most of DC Comics Armageddon 2001 events from 1991 <laughs> were done in annuals. Uh, this story: Monarch threatens to destroy the future, and Earth superheroes must stop him. Monarch of the changing identity. Uh, this, this was in uh, Superman Annual Number Three, started by Dan Jurgens and Dusty Abel. Superman and Batman annual number 15, Batman annual number 15, Chris, like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like they've done 15 <laughs> annuals. I feel like we'll never see that again. You know what I mean? No, never. Uh, an annual reach that, that, that height, much less a Even just an ongoing run, series. You know I mean? Yeah, if we saw 15 <laughs> regular comics, I'll be like, wow, this is a long run. Uh, that was by Alan Grant and Jim Fern. Justice League of America annual number five by Keith Giffen, J.M. JM DiMatteis, and... So many pencilers, folks. I didn't Truck full. write them out a lot. Uh, Hawk and Dove Annual Number Two by Barbara Kiesel and Kurt Swan. Also, Gabrielle Morissette, Carrie Gamel, and Paris Collins. A lot of artists. Lots. Uh, we have Hawk World Annual Number Two by John Ostrander and Gary Quapis. Quapis? Sure. Sure. Uh, Flash Annual Number Four by Mark Wade and Craig Brassfield. L E G I O N 91 Annual Number Two by Alan Grant and Mike McCone. Uh, New Teen Titans, oh, I'm sorry, just New Titans Annual Number 7 by Marv Wolfman and Tom Grinberg. Uh, there was the Action Comics Annual Number 3 by Roger Stern and Tom Grummet. Detective Comics Annual Number 4 by Louis Simonson and Tom Grinberg. The Adventures of Superman Annual Number 3 by Louis Simonson and Brian Hitch. And Justice League Europe Annual Number 2 by Keith Giffen, Gerard Jones, and again, many, many pencilers. Plus, there were 
two standalone bookend issues for this uh, miniseries or this maxi series more. Yes, there was. Uh, and the next one we're going to talk about is one that you and I know very well, because yeah. it's the one that brought us together. Yeah. <laughs> this is DC Comics Bloodlines event from 1993. Uh, ravenous spinal fluid-consuming aliens inf- infest Earthlings, and they, they gain some superpowers. Yeah. This was told in, uh, there was three stages here. We have Bloodlines Outbreak was the start. And uh, that began with Lobo Annual Number 1 by Alan Grant and Christian Alamy. Uh, Superman, The Man of Steel, Annual Number 2 by Louise Simonson and Eddie Newell. Batman, Shadow of the Bat, Annual Number 1 by Alan Grant and Trevor Von Eden. This went on into Flash, Annual Number 6 by Mark Wade and Phil Hester. The New Titans, Annual Number 9 by Paul Whitcover, Elizabeth Hand, and Malcolm Davis. And then, or is it Whitcover? I don't know. Superman, mm-hmm. Annual Number 5 by Dan Jurgens and David Lapham. Uh, Green Lantern Annual Number Two by Gerard Jones and Mitch Boyd. Uh, Bat- <laughs> Batman Annual keeps going. Number Seventeen mm. by Doug Mensch and Eduardo Barreto. Uh, Justice League International Annual Number Four by Gerard Jones and Mike Parabek. Then we went into the second stage of the Bloodlines infestation, Earth Plague, that began in Robin Annual Number Two by Chuck Dixon and Kieran Doyer. Uh, Action Comics Annual Number Five by Jeff Loeb and Lee Motor into Legion of Superheroes Annual Number Four by Tom Beerbaum, Mary Beerbaum, and many pencilers on that one. Mm-hmm. Green Arrow Annual Number Six by Mike Grell and Mike Collins. I wonder how Mike Grell felt about having to do this. I don't think tying in. Yeah, I don't think he loved this at all. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, Detective Comics Annual Number Six by Chuck Dixon and Jim Ballant. Uh, Justice League America Annual Number Seven by William Mesna Lopes and Greg Larock. Uh, Adventures of Superman Annual Five by Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, and Ed Hannigan. Uh, Hawkman Annual Number One by John Ostrander, Tim Truman, Jander Sema, and Steve Lieber. Uh, and then we go into the final stage here, Bloodlines Deathstorm, that sprung with uh, <laughs> a lot of death going on here. Yeah, a lot of Bloodline uh, <laughs> death. This is the 90s, guy. This is it a very is, violent time, apparently. <laughs> and we go right in with Deathstroke, annual number two, by Len Wein and Steve Irwin. Uh, and then Eclipso's annual himself here, uh, Eclipso annual number one, by Laura, Robert Lauren Fleming and David G. Klein. Uh, then we have the Demon Annual Number Two, which is probably the best remembered of this because it gave us Hitman. Right, Hitman, and then eventually the Section All Stars. Well, Section Eight back then, right? Yeah, the All Star Section Eight or whoever they was. Yeah. Uh, and this was by Goth Ennis and John McCree. And then it was uh, wrapped it up with Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number Three by Denny Soniel and several pencilers, four of them that I didn't want to list. Uh, <laughs> Team Titans Annual Number One by Marl Wolfman and Art Nichols. Uh, team Titans too. I want to remember. And then yeah, I just I really wanted to get a reaction out of you, Chris. But whatever that that series is mentioned, you have uh, some something to say. Uh, Legion L E G I O N Annual Number Four by Mark Wade, Mike McCone, and Tom Tenney. Yes, and I think it it, it ended with a like a two part bloodbath. Oh yeah. Specials. Yeah, there was. <laughs> Which, I think, uh, was there an opener too? I believe no. No, no, Lobo no, was the Lobo was the opener, yeah. but yeah, there, there was a, there was a, like a extra epilogue yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, with that behind us, we want to talk about the uh, the event that we're taking a part in here, the uh, hashtag best event ever. Throughout the month of June, several other bloggers and podcasters have taken part in the celebration of Eclipse of the Darkness Within's 25th anniversary, which, as I said earlier, really makes me feel ancient. Mm-hmm. Now, those folks will include the I'm the Gun podcast. Uh, who features a very, very uh, stilted and uh, stiff co-host this month. Uh, (laughs) The uh, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, the Coffee and Comics Podcast, Resurrections and Adam Warlock slash Thanos Podcast. Do you say Thanos or Thanos? I Let me think. I think I say Thanos. Yeah. I don't get a chance to say it out out loud that much. No, not very often. Yeah, when, when I do, I think I would say Thanos, but I don't know. Uh, we also have the Retroist, uh, our our good pal Joe Crawford's uh, for the non-discerning reader blog, the Pop Culture Palace, Rolled Spine's Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast, and DC Bloodlines. As we said earlier, links to all will be included in the show notes, and you can follow along on Twitter by checking out the hashtags Best Event Ever and Eclipso TDW25. Yep, all month long, folks. So. Mm-hmm. Uh... Hope you go check that out. Check out those other, uh, you know, installments of The Darkness Within. 
and uh, you can let us know what you think of those, or more importantly, what you think of us, and what you, and what you think of uh, you know this uh, episode, or Eclipso, or DC Comics, or events, or annuals, and you can write to us whatever you want at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mail History, on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mail, and I'm personally on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. Amadeus Comics. And every single week, every single day, actually, you need to go over to Chris is at on InfiniteEarth.com and check out what he's got going on there. I know you've got a uh, Eclipso-related content this weekend. Actually, the day that this, this podcast releases, yeah, <laughs> this Sunday and all week. Yeah, so you'll be cranking plenty of Eclipso over there, but uh, really not to be missed. It is it, the new DC comic every day, and you have really been digging into the quarter bins lately, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. Uh, there have just been some really right in my wheelhouse. I mean, you know, I, I, I love all, everything that you do, and you've, you've put me on to so many new and different comics, but when I see those old Bronze Age, Silver Age comics, I just get giddy. You know, I just love oh, they're it. they're a blast. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's everything. I mean, it's, it's stuff that came out a couple of months ago, stuff that came out 40 years ago. So, uh, mm-hmm. really, you, you can't miss it. Chris is at InfiniteEarths.com. Go check it out every day. But I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? I just want to extend a thanks to the to the folks behind the uh, the best event ever event here. Absolutely, uh, Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun had invited us in, and uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun to do stuff like this. And uh, just wanted to express our gratitude. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. We we like being part of the community, and uh, it was a lot of fun to deal with this sort of weird uh event uh yes I, I really don't want to expound too much on it because you know we got other, <laughs> other people are going to handle that so yeah we don't want to spoil anybody's uh anybody's fun exactly so uh if that's all you got for him until next time i want you all to keep it on the treadmill ecliptically so you didn't know what time it was the lights were low oh oh Sound it seemed to fight Came back like a slow voice on a wave of fight That weren't no DJ, that was hazy cosmic time There's a star